For those of you who haven't seen yet and know him, Bill Ruggles is with us this morning, which is very exciting. Very grateful to have my friend with us. Um, we have been in the midst of a series where we're working through the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John was written by one of Jesus' earliest disciples, a guy named John. Um, obviously. I know, shocking revelation there. And he was writing to a group of people that were made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, Gentiles is just a word for somebody who's not a Jew. And specifically within that grouping of Gentiles, we believe that since he was writing in the city of Ephesus at the time, we know that there were some disciples of John the Baptist. And so early on in this gospel, John the Baptist factors in quite a bit. And part of the reason that probably is, is because John the Baptist's disciples are a part of the audience that's being spoken to. And so John the Baptist has the opportunity to keep pointing his fingers back at Jesus and goes, man, it's about him. And a couple weeks ago, as Lee was teaching on John chapter 2, we saw Jesus do two really huge things. The first thing he did was at a wedding, he turned water into wine. This was the first of his public miracles that he did. And it's something that caused his disciples to begin to go, man, he's even more unbelievable than we anticipated. In other words, there were a lot more things that they saw, but that was the first of the public miracles that he did. The second thing that we saw in John chapter 2 was Jesus on the, during the time of... Um, oh, what is it? Why am I blanking? Anyway, at some point, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. It's going to be one of those days. Goes to Jerusalem, and during that time, he's in the temple courts, and he starts looking around, and he goes, Unbelievable. I've got people in here who are exchanging money at a much higher rate. I've got people who are selling cattle and sheep and birds for sacrifices at astronomically high rates. It's kind of like going to a baseball game and going to buy a hot dog or something. You know, it's like, are you kidding me that you're going to charge me $20? For... And Jesus begins to become more and more incensed because they had turned a house of worship into a den of thieves. And he starts clearing, cleaning house. He begins to upturn the money changers tables. He begins to drive out the cattle and tells the people who are selling birds, get these things out of my father's house. You have completely missed the point and you have twisted the purpose of this place. And people begin to talk. What is going on? This guy who does miracles, who speaks with authority and who is willing to take on the religious establishment, is willing to challenge the status quo. Who is this guy? And there's one person in particular that we now meet as we move into John chapter 3. So if you will, uh, grab a Bible. Today we are going to be camped out in the book of John, particularly in John chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. And we are going to work verse by verse through this particular chapter. We are introduced to a guy named Nicodemus. And we, as we learn from the very first verse of John chapter 3, Nicodemus is kind of an important guy. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewing, Jewish ruling council. Let me tell you a little bit about what that single verse tells us about Nicodemus. First of all, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were the religious experts of the day. They were the guys who had devoted their life to studying the scriptures, to memorizing the scriptures. A Pharisee could not be a Pharisee until they memorized the entire, what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish books of the Bible, memorized. And furthermore, they were hyper-focused 
on the law, the law of Moses. They lived their lives to fulfill the law of Moses, believing that if they could just get everybody to actually live out the Mosaic law, not break a single law for an entire day, they believed the Messiah would come back. So they were hyper fixated on keeping the law. This is who they were. But Nicodemus was more than just a Pharisee because we read that he was a member of of the Jewish ruling council. Now, there was a group of 70 men called the Sanhedrin. They were the rulers of the Jews. And if to give a, a modern analogy, it was as if we had taken the Senate, the House of Representatives, the Supreme Court and the executive branch and just clumped them all together and said, this is the Sanhedrin to the Jews. They were everything. And as we learn, Nicodemus is one of those 70. He's a very important person in the Jewish circles, particularly in Jerusalem. And this guy, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus to basically ask the question, who are you? So we read now, there was a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night. That's an interesting point. Because probably the reason he came at night is he didn't want to necessarily be seen interacting with this kind of podunk, small-town rabbi who's causing such mayhem in the Jewish circles, but at the same time, his integrity couldn't allow him just to turn a blind eye to him. So he wants to know who he is, but he doesn't necessarily want to be seen interacting with him for fear that perhaps some of the other Jewish elites are going to come down hard on him. And so he comes at night to Jesus, and he said, and now notice the words that he says, they're very respectful and honoring. He says, Rabbi, teacher, That's an honor, a term of respect. We know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. So right out of the bat, Nicodemus is showing Jesus tremendous respect. And he's saying, we know you're from God because you're doing things that no one else could do if it weren't for God being with him. And we might think that Jesus' response, especially because he's confronted with a very important person, Jesus might be like, oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, you know, well, you know, it's all God. It's not me. You know, don't don't look at me. Look at him. But Jesus was never someone to be deferential before people simply because of their, you know, stature, because of their importance. He was never someone to, to kind of get excited over things that people could offer him. Instead, Jesus constantly cut through all of that stuff and went right to the heart of things. And typically would focus right on the things that were keeping people from the kingdom of God. Keeping people from being able to engage in what God was doing in their midst. We're going to encounter the word kingdom of God quite a few times in this chapter. Kingdom of God is simply the place where God's will is done. So we say, God, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Right? So wherever God's will is done, that's where his kingdom reign is happening. And Jesus cuts right to the heart of the things that are keeping Nicodemus from the kingdom of God. Verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly. Every time we see very truly, what it means is amen, amen. That's the literal translation. Truly, truly, and as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Jesus uses that term specifically to highlight a point he's trying to get across. He's going to use that term, amen, amen, truly, truly, several times in this chapter. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, the word that we translate again, anathen, is also translated in the same gospel book, 
as from above. So it can be translated either again or from above. So we could read it one of two ways. You must be born again or you must be born from above. Why does that matter? Because it insinuates that this process of being reborn is something that can only take place because of divine intervention. It can only be done by God's Spirit working in us. In other words, if you want to see what God is up to, if you want to know God's will, then you must be spiritually reborn. (laughs) And I love Nicodemus' response. Well, how can someone be born when they're old? I, I, I mean, it's not like, surely you cannot enter a second time into your mother's womb to be born. And all the mothers in the room said, amen, right? It's like, they, and I think that Nicodemus kind of knew that's not necessarily what he was suggesting. But at the same time, like, what are you talking about? How do you get born again? How, how can you be born from above? I mean, it's not, like, it's not like we can actually literally be born again. So what are you talking about? And Jesus answered, amen, amen, very truly, I tell you. Don't miss this. No one can enter the kingdom of God where God's will is being carried out unless they are born of water and the spirit. Because flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. So you must be born of water and flesh. What does that mean? Well, some people have interpreted that to mean he's referring to two different types of birth, right? Born of water would be a reference to the amniotic fluid. Your water breaks and then you go and get born. And then being born of the spirit is the spiritual rebirth that we're talking about being born again. The problem is nowhere in that day and age was physical birth ever referred to as being born of water. So that's a a tenuous translation. Maybe it's true, but probably not. Not the best answer. Then other people will point to the born of water and say, well, that's a reference to baptism. You have to be baptized, and then there's a spiritual rebirth. But really, the Jewish group, especially Nicodemus, didn't undergo baptism. Really, the reason that John the Baptist was causing such a stir by calling people to be baptized was because he was actually calling Jews to be baptized as well. So it was kind of a strange thing that there was some dissonance there. So again, it's a possible interpretation of that but it probably isn't the very best one, particularly because he's talking to Nicodemus and he expects that Nicodemus understands what he's talking about. There's a third interpretation of what he means by being born of water and spirit. And that goes back to the Old Testament because remember, Nicodemus is a Jewish expert on the law and on scripture. He has this thing memorized. And time after time throughout the Old Testament, there are passages that talk about a day and age when God is going to redeem his people. And at that time, they talk about God cleansing his people with water and spiritually rebirthing them over and over again. Perhaps the very best example that we have of this is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. You don't need to turn there. Um, I'm going to turn there, but it's going to be on the screen here in just a moment. Ezekiel 36 comes at a time when God's people are scattered. And they're waiting for God to bring the people back into the land. And Ezekiel speaking the words that God has placed on his heart, begins to say, God is going to redeem you from the land and he's going to do something radical. He is going to redeem us out of the spiritual morass that we find ourselves in. And so we read in Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to begin in verse 24, although it starts with verse 25. So I'm just going to read one verse before that starts. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and will bring you back to your own land. And now we start here in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. And so what we see, and I think perhaps the best interpretation given who Jesus is speaking with and the number of times that the water and the spirit are brought up in this idea of a spiritual rebirth is that Jesus is actually referring to this day when God would redeem his people. He's referring to the act of restoring them, the water, the the purification as an act of, of kind of forgiving their sins and the things that have come in their past. And the spiritual rebirth then, the Holy Spirit giving, being given to them, the removing of the heart of stone and the giving of the heart of flesh in order to enable them to now continue to do the will of God. Remember, the kingdom of God is where God's will is done. So if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you need to be enabled to do his will. The first parameter is you need to be able to enter into the kingdom. You need to be forgiven of all the junk that would keep you separate from God. The second caveat is you then need to be able to do God's will. And we know our flesh doesn't really enjoy doing that. So it's only through the enablement of the Spirit that it can do it. So I think that Jesus is probably pointing to that and other passages that talk about that kind of a spiritual rebirth and saying, this needs to take place. Going back to John chapter 3. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. And then verse 6, he kind of backs this up. And he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. In other words, if you were able somehow to climb back in your mother's womb and be born a second time, all you would be born as is more flesh. Because that's all the flesh can give. But it's the spirit alone who can create a spiritual rebirth. It's divine intervention that needs to take place if you hope to be transformed and be able to then do God's will. And then he gives an illustration from nature. He says, verse 7, You shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again or born from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, you look outside and you look at the trees. You can see the trees moving. You can hear the sound of the wind, but you don't know exactly where the the wind originated and you don't know where the wind is going now granted this is back before doppler 7 kind of radars and all that kind of stuff we have a better idea perhaps of where it's coming and where it's headed but the illustration is you don't know where it comes from but you see the effects of the wind and in the same way you don't necessarily know or you cannot control the holy spirit but you can see the effects of the holy spirit working in your hearts you can see the effect of the holy spirit transforming someone's life Because they look different. And that's only because of the Holy Spirit working in them to give them new life. Now before I move on here, I just want to step back for a moment and consider what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Jesus is suggesting to him that the 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 only way to enter into the kingdom of God is not through the flesh, not through effort, not through any sort of enablement on our own part, but solely through divine intervention. Which is a radical thing to say to a Pharisee. 
Because where did the Pharisees like Nicodemus find their identity and their righteousness? Through what they did. Through the law of Moses. Through fulfilling the law of Moses by living perfectly, that's how they found their identity. And now Jesus is saying, by the way, the entire foundation that you have based your righteousness and you're standing with God on, it's empty. It is a false floor. It cannot support your weight. And apart from the enablement of the Holy Spirit, apart from God entering into your life and radically transforming your heart, you can't enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, don't place your faith in your own efforts. You don't need to turn here, but I think perhaps the best example I can give you in the Bible of the heartbeat that Jesus is getting after, the posture that Jesus is taking in all of this and calling Nicodemus to take was exemplified by a guy named Paul. He's one who wrote about half of the New Testament. And in a letter to the Philippian church, he talks about the distinction between what he's done versus what God has done in him. And he says, listen, you guys are all bragging about how righteous you are based upon all these things you've done. And he says this, um, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have it up here on the screen. If someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more confidence. I have more reason. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the Mosaic law. Okay, got that covered. I am of the people of Israel. I'm an Israelite. I was born into this. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a very important priestly tribe. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the man in regards to the law. I'm a Pharisee. I know all this stuff. I've studied it. I've memorized the scripture. It's all hidden in my heart. As for zeal, you want to know if I'm zealous about it? I persecuted the church because I thought that they were against my God. And in, re in, in regards to righteousness based upon the law, faultless. No one can point to a law that I have broken. But now listen to his heartbeat here. Because that's the foundation that the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, based everything upon. But he goes on in verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider those things that we base our lives and our identity upon, all my efforts, garbage. That I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or through my own effort, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That is the posture that Jesus is asking Nicodemus to take. Your identity with Christ, your righteousness is not something based upon what you've done. You cannot be born again by the flesh and think that that gives you entrance into the kingdom of God. Can't do it. In the same way that you could never crawl back in your mother's womb and be reborn, perish the thought. In that same way, you cannot cause yourself to be spiritually reborn. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. Only a divine act of divine intervention can make you reborn. Well, Jesus has pretty much undermined everything that Nicodemus has ever been taught and has ever taught other people. He's flipped it on its head, and so it's understandable that he would respond in verse 9 of John chapter 3. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. How on earth 
And he's, what? And Jesus said, you are Israel's teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. Very truly, amen, amen, I tell you. We speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've only spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Okay, I'm just telling you stuff using analogies from the world so that you can try to understand it and you're not getting it. So how can I possibly begin to then unravel some of the mysteries of the heavens that you couldn't possibly understand? Because only I have been to heaven. Only I could actually speak to those things. And he says in verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who is from heaven, the son of man. Interesting that he uses that term son of man, because in the book of Daniel, another prophet in the Old Testament, Daniel talks about a vision in which he sees one like the son of man coming from the throne room of heaven, clothed in light, bearing the righteousness of God. Now, the term son of man was a messianic term. But it was nowhere near as laden with political baggage as the term Messiah. Because the people were all waiting for the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. That's the Hebrew word for it. In Greek, the word is Christ. So people were waiting for the Messiah or the Christ, God's anointed Redeemer. And Jesus doesn't allow them to call him that name for the very reason that it comes laden with all of these expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to do. So the Son of Man was a safer term to refer to himself as. And throughout the Gospel of John, he's constantly using that term. But it is a messianic term. So, no one has ever gone into heaven except for the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And then he says in verse 14, this really interesting term. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Huh? Don't turn here. I'm going to go ahead and do it. All the way back in the book of Numbers. I'm sure you were probably reading there this morning. Back in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, is the reference that Jesus just made to Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness. And it happens at a time when the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, waiting to get into the promised land. God has redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. And he's led them through the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land. And like they love to do, the Israelites are complaining again. <laughs> we don't have enough food. This water doesn't taste very good. And why did you bring us out here to die, Moses? Wouldn't it be easier just to have let us die back there in Egypt? And they start complaining to God and to Moses as they love to do. I'm so glad, by the way, that we weren't in that position because then everybody would be talking about how we were complaining. At least I would. And so we read in verse 4 of Numbers chapter 21, as they were on their way, the people grew impatient along the way. They spoke against God. It's up here on the screen. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food, this manna that you're providing. That's not good enough for us. Then the Lord says, okay, so, you know, the honey's not working. Let me bring the rod a little bit. The Lord sent venomous snakes amongst them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. That got their attention, surprisingly. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord, Yahweh, 
The God of Israel said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Interesting. I don't know of any other time that God asked somebody to make a kind of idol. You know, it seems very unlike God's character to say, hey, make this thing to look at. So when you look at it, you'll be saved. And yet tremendous foreshadowing. In fact, so tremendous that Jesus points back to it directly and says, in the same way that Moses lifted up that bronze snake on a pole so that anytime somebody was bitten and death was all they had to look forward to because the venom was already in their bloodstream. They're dead. All they need to do is look at that snake on a pole, put their faith that I can save them and they will live. And Jesus says, I the Son of Man, am just like that snake. I, too, am going to be raised up on a pole. We call it the cross. And anyone who looks to me will not perish, but will have eternal life. And in case we didn't get it just from that, then John kind of interjects. Really? Awesome. I think, I think God likes John 3.16, since we're about to read his favorite verse in the Bible. Some of your Bibles, if you have the red letter Bibles, you'll notice it goes from red to black at this point, probably in some of them, although others that may have not have made the choice. That's because a lot of scholars think that at this point, Jesus's words in Nicodemus ends and John, the author of this gospel, kind of jumps in and adds a little bit more information. That's why these words probably aren't in red in your Bible. This one we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes whether they're Israelite or Gentile. Whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now we stop there. But if we stop there, we we miss out on first how much it flows out of what's come before. I hope you notice. And then secondly, what comes after is just as important. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Last week, as we were doing baptisms, Lee made the point, God is not a condemning God. He doesn't send people to hell. He desires that none shall perish. But here's the thing. We, every single human being, is just like one of those Israelites who has been bitten by a snake. The venom is in our blood. For them, it was snake venom. For us, it's the effect of sin in our lives. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And it also says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every single one of us has fallen short. Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has the corrupting power of sin in our veins. And every single one of us has, as our future, death. And yet, God made a way for that not to be our legacy, for that not to be what we have to look forward to. He sent Jesus, God in human flesh, to hang upon a cross just like that snake was hung up there. So that all we need to do is look to him, place our faith in him, say, I need you to come into my life and transform me. And suddenly, we are no longer condemned. Suddenly, we have been given new life in him. He did not send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save the world. However, 
If we refuse to embrace Jesus, if we reject him, then it is tantamount to us embracing the effects of sin in our life. We're already condemned. The reality is we don't have to be. I hope that makes sense because it's a, it, it speaks a lot to God's character. Some people look at God as some angry traffic cop up in, up in heaven, right? With the mirror glasses, kind of arms crossed, looking down on us, waiting for us to mess up so he can strike us with a lightning bolt or something. I know I just took a whole lot of Greek mythology and threw it in there. Plus a little bit of chips. But that was not my intention. The point is this. God is not some angry traffic cop waiting to strike us down. He is a loving father who loves his children so much that he would go out of his way to take the punishment that we had earned upon himself. And as a father, I begin to understand that because my little boy hurts himself and I want nothing more than to take that upon myself so he doesn't have to hurt. Ethan fell out of our trampoline yesterday and hit his head. I'm just like, oh gosh, no. You know, if only I had been able to do something. God did something. He is a loving father. And then John goes on. Verse 19. This is the verdict. You know what? I'm going to do a run up in here because I want us to see how this all fits together. It's not just I don't want to just piecemeal this. So verse 16, we'll start there. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him in Christ is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. The light of truth, the light of grace, the light of God has entered the world in the form of Jesus Christ. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. They hide. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done in the sight of God. In other words, (laughs) that light is really bright. In other words, God has taken the most important step. When we couldn't save ourselves, God moved towards us and did everything that needed to be done to save us. He took upon himself the penalty that was due us. That was the most important step, but that wasn't the only step. Because we have a response. We have a choice. Do we run to the light or do we run away from the light? I find it so interesting, by the way, that God gives us that option. But if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, we see that God created mankind with free will. As we've talked about a number of times, the reason he created mankind with free will is because he doesn't want his representatives just to be a whole bunch of robots doing the programming that he's put into them. Because a robot cannot have a genuine relationship. Sometimes I wish my kids would do everything I told them to, but if they didn't have a choice then I couldn't have a genuine relationship with them. True love demands the freedom to choose whether or not to love, whether or not to obey, and whether or not to accept a gift that is freely offered. And so God has given us, offered us a gift of grace. The next question is, how do we respond to that? Do we run to it? Do we run to Christ? Or do we run away from him? 
We'll come back to that in a little bit. I just want to finish out John chapter 3. Verse 22. After this, now, now the, the picture changes. The conversation with Nicodemus is over, and we kind of continue on. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing. John the Baptist, this guy that we've already been exposed to a couple of chapters before, John was also baptizing at Aon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming to be baptized. And then he kind of has this little inclusion. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And so some of John's disciples came to him to to share some of their concerns. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, Jesus, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going out to him. This is horrible. He's like elbowing in on your territory. These people should have been your disciples and said they're going to be his disciples. And John just kind of smiles and laughs and goes, a person can receive only what has been given them from heaven. God gives as he chooses. You yourselves can testify that I already said I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Here's what he's saying. On a wedding day, who's more important? The groom or the best man? Everybody who's ever been the groom or the bride. Yeah, the bride is actually the most important person. (laughs) Silly, silly question, but I didn't give that as an option. The groom is obviously the most important person. The best man would be silly to stand up there and go, hey, notice me. What what about my needs? You know, doesn't everybody want to know what I care about? Doesn't everybody want to watch me dance? It's like, no, we're here to celebrate the union between the bride and the groom. The best man's job is simply to be there to support his friend, help out in any way. And John is saying in the same way, I'm like that best man. I am here for the groom. Jesus is being betrothed to his church, his people. He is inaugurating God's kingdom. It's exciting. But those people don't belong to me. They're not my bride. They're his bride. I'm not the focus. He's the focus. He must become greater. I must become less. Does that make sense? Okay. And then he follows up. And the next few verses sound so similar to what's come before in John chapter 3 that I really feel like it's just the apostle John who wrote this is just making sure we get it. So he's giving layer upon layer saying the same thing. He says, this is John the Baptist speaking. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony. Remember earlier, Jesus said, hey, I'm talking to you about earthly things. How on earth could you possibly understand about heavenly things? Because only the Son of Man has been there. Only I could speak to it, but you couldn't possibly fathom it. And John is now reiterating that point. He's above us. We are beneath him. And that's just as it should be. He testifies to what has been seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Verse 33, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Jesus says something almost identical in John chapter 8. He says, if you are truly my disciple, you'll do what I say. You obey my teaching. Then when you obey what I tell you to do, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
So, so the Baptist says, anyone who actually does the will of God, anyone who actually submits to Jesus' lordship, will be able to testify that what he is saying is absolutely and utterly truthful. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God for God, oh, speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. I, John the Baptist, have simply come to baptize people into a baptism of repentance, to prepare their hearts for the Messiah. Jesus is the one who has been anointed by God and is ultimately the conduit of the Holy Spirit, handing out this transformative Holy Spirit that can help us be spiritually reborn. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you better run to him because he is the way. He is the truth. He is the only source of life you can find, not me. Verse 35. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. So whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, I never knew that this verse, I, it just, this verse never resonated for me. I think I'd skipped pastor. I always stopped at John 3:16 and just stopped there. But what I find so fascinating is that this verse 36 here reiterates what John has just said in John 3:16 through 18. In other words, God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So therefore, anyone who accepts Jesus Christ is safe, is no longer condemned, is no longer awaiting death. But if you reject the Christ, Jesus, then you're already condemned because sin is already in your veins. And you've rejected the name of the one and only God. Twice in John chapter 3, the same point is made from two different people. And what we see, if we kind of step back and look at John chapter 3 as a whole, is I know we've gone through a lot. I know that we've just been rushing. But I hope that you see that there are layers. First is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And then the next layer is John kind of explaining, reiterating some of what Jesus has talked about. And then the third layer is John the Baptist affirming what has just been said. And all three of these witnesses make the same point. If we wanted to boil down John chapter 3 into one sentence, it's this. Probably is going to be a little bit more than one sentence. Firstly, if you want to enter into the, the, the kingdom of God, if you want God's will to be done in your life, you cannot do that by human effort. You cannot earn your way into relationship with God. The only way that you can ever truly be part and parcel of God's will in this world and spend eternity with Him is if you are spiritually reborn, born from above. The only way that that happens is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way that we can enter into relationship with God, and he is the only way that we can fulfill God's will in our lives. Which is challenging, because my, my typical response is one of trying to do things by my own self, by my own strength, particularly when I stumble and fall. Right? Because Jesus is the light. Really, when Jesus came into the world as the light, he drew a line in the sand. 
He doesn't allow us to sit on the fence and go, I like Jesus, he can be my savior, but I'm not really interested in him being my Lord. He doesn't give us that option. He drew a line in the sand and says, will you come to me or will you run from me? Will you embrace the light or will you go on holding on to the darkness? May I be the first to say it is very difficult at times to relinquish my hold on the darkness. Or maybe a better way of putting that is sometimes it's very difficult to get darkness to relinquish its control of me. And unfortunately, as I look at my life, and I would suspect, as I've walked with a lot of you, and I know that, you know, this is not uncommon. At times, it feels like it's our job to clean ourselves up, scrape off all the darkness so that we can come into the light, right? Kind of like a wounded dog who goes off and hides to lick its wounds until it's healed enough to come back into society because it's afraid it might be hurt or might be rejected or might be, you know, wounded again, wounded deeper. And sometimes I feel like that proverbial wounded dog and I go off and I hide and I lick my wounds trying to clean myself up, make myself worthy of God's love. I become a Nicodemus. I become someone who's trying to do it by my own strength. I know I'm probably the only one. And what we are taught through John chapter 3 is rather than run from our Father when we mess up, rather than run from the light, we need to run to the light. Because in the darkness, darkness only begets more darkness. And I find that the enemy loves to hide in the darkness. The enemy loves to hide in those shadow areas of our lives that we keep locked down, that we don't allow anybody else into, and loves to say, if anybody knew about this, you would be rejected. You would be, they would be disgusted. They would want nothing to do with you. And so we take these little areas of our life and we cover them over, kind of like Adam and Eve did with the fig leaves in the garden, right? We hide. And we put on a happy face. And people say, how are you doing? Awesome. I'm great. And inside we're empty and broken. And we try to clean ourselves up and become worthy. Try to do enough good things so that we can... You know, I'm a good person. Of course I'm going to have... I'm a good person. I hear that so often. Nicodemus was a good person. Jesus straight up shot a hole in the bottom of his boat. Not good enough. The only way you can enter the kingdom of God is to be born again, born from above, spiritual divine intervention. God alone can do the transforming work of making us worthy of him. It is not a matter of our actions. It is not a matter of effort. Rather than running from him trying to become good enough, we need to run to him. Throw ourselves at his mercy. And by the way, he's already shown what his response is. He loved us so much that he sent him, his son to die for us so that we don't have to perish, but can have eternal life. Run to the light. And light is interesting because it does two things. First off, well, it does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is it reveals, right? Light illuminates things and reveals things for what they are. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's really an uncomfortable thing. The second thing that light does is it actually is healing there's a reason why a doctor, if you have a, a deep wound, will not necessarily cover it all the time, but will encourage you to take the bandage off so the light can hit it. The light has restorative healing properties to it. And Jesus, ultimately, as the light, is the only one that can truly heal us spiritually. So my point this morning, 
as I'm going to wrap this up, is that we cannot do this on our own. We desperately need a Savior. And thankfully, our Father, who loves us more than we will ever fathom, has given us that Savior in Jesus Christ. All we need to do is believe. Now, the interesting thing about the word believe is it's not just about intellect. It's about response, right? Let's say that Cameron came up to me and goes, Eric, I just got my learner's permit. I'm a really good driver. I could tell him, yeah, I I believe you're a really good driver, Cameron. Awesome. How do you know if I really believe he's a good driver? I hand him my keys to my car and I get in the passenger seat, right? Our, Our actions do not cause us to be saved, but our actions show what we really believe. How are we saved? Through faith alone. That's it. But our actions show what we believe. I, I, think that this, I think this stool will hold me up. How do I know? I put my weight down on the stool, pick up my feet, and I entrust all of my weight to the stool. I think Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How are you going to know if that's true? Because I not only pay lip service to him and call him my savior, I actually allow him to be my Lord. And suddenly stuff starts happening in my life. The Holy Spirit is given permission to begin cleaning house and shining into those dark closets that I've kept under lock and key, hidden from the rest of the world. He begins to reveal. He begins to clean out. He begins to heal. My life becomes transformed. I start speaking to my wife and my children differently. The things I allow into my life begin to look different. I start slowly down this process that we as Christians call sanctification, being set apart. It is a lifetime process. Even Bill Ruggles and Gene and Merv are still in that process. We never reach the end of that sanctification process in this world, on this life. But we are slowly transformed in the image of God to reflect him. That can only take place through God's enablement, through the Holy Spirit in us. It's not through our efforts. It's through him doing it in us. Does that make sense? Okay, so two things as I wrap this up. First, There are some of us in here this morning who may have never made that choice of saying, Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. Because I've tried honestly to do this by my own strength, and it hasn't been working. And so for some of us this morning in here, as we are hearing about who Jesus presents himself to be, as we're hearing about how John presented him, as we're hearing about how John the Baptist referred to him, we're presented with the invitation Are you willing to accept this gift that has been freely offered? God has done everything that needed to be done. All that you need to do is accept it and begin to live out of it. And if that's you and you go, you know what? I don't know everything with what that means. I don't even know kind of how that's going to play out, but I know that I can't do this by myself anymore. Then it's as simple as inviting God to begin doing that work of accepting that gift. It can be a prayer as simple as, and by the way, there's no... Mantra, no, no prayer you have to pray specifically. Here's just an example of what you could say. God, I need your help. I have been trying to do this by my own strength. And I've seen where that got me. I'm sick and tired of being in the darkness. And I need to come into the light. So Jesus, would you do for me what you promised to do? 
would you come into my life and would you clean me up and would you have your way with me because I submit my life to you as both my Savior and as my Lord. So you can pray that. Or it can look how, however, whatever words you choose to invite him to come in and begin to do the work that he has desired to do. If that's you, and you want to pray that prayer, or you have prayed that prayer, and you want to speak with somebody on your connection card, you can indicate that, that you'd like to speak with the pastor, tell a friend, come and talk to myself or Pastor Lee after the service. We would be honored to walk with you through that and would love to not only have you pray that prayer, but help you then begin to engage in walking towards the light. So that's one response. But I suspect for a a lot of us in here this morning, we hear this message and we are somebody who has prayed that prayer a long time ago. Somebody who believes it intellectually, even desires to live it out, but we also look at our lives and we recognize that we have been playing on the line that Jesus drew in the sand. We have been trying to have feet on both sides. Being in the spirit and yet at the same time keeping our feet in the world, in the shadow areas. And we are sick and tired of letting the shadow areas run rampantly in our lives. And we desperately want to come into the light so that God gets the glory. And if that's you, then perhaps this morning the best response you have is simply to get honest with God. Come before Him just as somebody who has never come before Him has done and just say, God, I need you. God, I need you. Jesus, I need you to be my Lord. I need you to clean house terribly. I've been trying to do it by my own self, by my own strength. And I'm tired of doing that. God, would you help me to to peel back the fingers of my heart that have been holding on to these little areas of sin, these little compromises, these little shadow areas, and the enemy has been using them to such great effect in my life. God, would you redeem me? Would you begin that transformative, continue that transformative work in my heart? Jesus, would you shine the light of truth and life and healing into me and use me to reflect the light of that truth to others in your timing and in your way, for your name's sake. Would you become greater? Would you help me to become less? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to go into a time of response. There's a couple of ways we're going to do this. One, we're just going to sing a song or two. Secondly, we're going to take offering in just a moment. If you have a prayer request, if you would like to speak with a pastor, if you just have questions that have been stirred up, write those on those connection cards and drop them in. I desire that more than anything else that you could put in there. That honestly, you would be responding to God today. This is an important conversation for all of us to have, not just people who have never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. The third